Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please, please turn, or if it's digital, tap your way to 1 John chapter 4. As you hear what we're talking about with 1 John 4 today, you'll, you'll understand why it's so important that you be reading along with us from scripture. We want to show that the teaching of Hope Church comes from scripture that we're not just kind of coming up with this stuff, that it is connected to what God has said. And for you to be able to evaluate that, I want you to see what it says in the actual Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, please don't panic. We'll have the words on the screen, and we'd love to give you a Bible in a readable English translation. So this series on 1 John, we've tried to focus on the, the main idea of 1 John, which is this idea of assurance, the idea that it's one thing to have hope in God, like we talk about, this hope that God's going to win, this hope that evil uh, becomes overcome by the good. But that hope is cold if you're not sure if it applies to you. The, the enemy has a, a tactic that's very effective to accuse you. His name, Satan, means accuser, to accuse you so that you do slip in your confidence that you're his. Yeah, it's great if God wins, but man, what, what if I'm not on his side? So we've been thinking about all of these different tests that John gives for you to apply to yourself in order to gain assurance. And it is a very self-focused sort of look so far. You've been looking at yourself and at your life and at your understandings or affections to try and determine if you know God. Well, today, John has another concern. And it is not just to look at yourself, but to look at your influences, to look out at the teaching that you're receiving in order to say, are the things that I'm receiving from God, from God? Just because somebody says that they're telling me God's word, are they? Well, it's a really good question, and it's one that I want to understand really well. It's something that comes up a lot. I mean, anytime you do anything, there's conflicting experts that try to give you their opinion. For my family, I was in charge of the turkey for Thanksgiving. Big deal. I was very impressed with myself for getting that job, that my mother would allow me to be the turkey guy. But okay, it's my job, and I'm going to do the turkey second year, and I'm, I'm really reading about it and trying to look up how to do the perfect turkey. Well, there are at least a thousand different perfect turkeys out there. When you say, how do you make the perfect turkey? There's a lot of different opinions, and the opinions don't line up. So what are you supposed to do? Well, you kind of make some mix and, and try and do your best, and everybody's too nice to tell you if they liked it or not. <laughs> well, that's good enough. Who cares? It's just a turkey. You think about the medical world, there's a lot of that that happens too, and that's much more meaningful than just your turkey, is, is who's right when it comes to your health. Um, YouTube, for some reason, thinks... and. YouTube was right because I clicked on it. But YouTube thinks I really want to see uh, these chiropractor videos where people will go in and they'll crack somebody's whatever and it's just this enormous sort of moment. And then the person has relief. Uh, the one that I thought was really fun or the one that I clicked on first, it said a neurosurgeon said he needed surgery, but he just needed the ringer dinger. Uh, and the ringer dinger is uh, a guy in Texas, uh, a chiropractor in Texas, puts a towel around your neck. And I'm sure he does, you know, other stuff, too, that makes it safe. But then he grabs the towel, and it's like a close-up of the person's face. And they're usually normal people, so maybe they got a little extra face, right? And that towel, and they're kind of pushed up. <laughs> and then he goes, ho! And he, he yanks on their neck really hard. And there's this huge crack, and they go like, ah! 
but then they can walk. And then, okay, well, I watch a video like that. If I'm somebody with chronic neck pain, I have to say, do I, do I listen to the neurosurgeon or do I need the ringer dinger? Like I've got to figure out which one of those conflicting medical opinions I'm going to listen to. Well, when it comes to the teaching that you receive about big stuff, yeah, you get a lot of conflicting ideas. The stuff that's out there is uh, kind of strange, and, and the stuff that's out there is certainly a lot. When you think about how to know what you can know about heaven, hell, God, Jesus, death, and what happens after, what is the right, what should you love in the world, what is, what is moral, you have a lot of people with a lot of different opinions, and you in the modern age have more access to those opinions than ever before. You don't have to travel to like meet a Buddhist. Like you can just meet the worldviews of the world from your podcast app. You have an unlimited level of access to conflicting opinions about the big questions. Who's right? And you say, well, I trust the Bible. I don't have to worry about all those other world religions. Okay. Well, let me just tell you, as somebody who teaches the Bible, that there are many people who teach the Bible. And of those many people who teach the Bible, I disagree with some of them. Some of them I disagree with violently. Never attacked them. But if we were in the same room, I don't know what might happen. Some of them are saying things. They're not just wrong. They're incredibly destructive. And John had the same concern for the churches that he was writing to. So he says in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, when you read that, if you're like me, and this just comes up in your Bible reading plan, and it says something about testing spirits, you might think, that's weird, <laughs> and just kind of keep reading and not ask too many questions about what he's saying there. But if it's your job to preach on those verses, you don't have that luxury. You have to actually understand what it means and try and talk about it. Well, it does seem a little strange for him to say that you're supposed to test the spirits. It sounds very exorcism-y. It sounds very like seance -y. It sounds like you're doing some sort of communication with the supernatural by way of what? Magic or something. But no, let's take a moment and just understand what we see before us. Look at the second piece where he says, many false Prophets have gone out into the world. Well, if that's what he's saying, then, then we can understand the first part of this verse a little bit easier. When he's saying to test the spirits, he's saying that when someone speaks, they're speaking on behalf of sort of a, a worldview. And when we say worldview, that sounds very static. But in general, worldview talks about what is supernatural as well. It talks about what is spiritual as well. So for this person to speak about some big topic like that, they're, they're representative of a, a spirit, of a, a way of seeing things. This guy, Danny Aiken, who wrote a really great commentary on 1 John, he says, John's warning is clear. Behind every statement is a spirit, a, a pneuma. Now that's the Greek word for spirit. But not every spirit is the spirit of God. We talked about this at Hope Church before. Why is Christianity so severe? Why do we say heaven or hell, God or Satan? Why, why isn't there in between 
There's in-between on a lot of other stuff. There's in-between when you go to work. There's in-between when you get rewards or punishments. Why is it so extreme in Christianity with no in-between? Well, because we know that you either have God or you don't. It's crazy to think that. It's crazy to, to, to have this idea that you would come in contact with God and like have him. The idea that Christian understanding of salvation is like adoption or like marriage. The idea that you would come to know him fully is crazy, but that's what's taught. And so either you'll, you'll know him finally or you won't. That's a light switch. That's a binary. That's a yes or no. So when you come to stuff like this, what he's saying is it, there's nothing is neutral. Every teaching is either ultimately going to be leading you towards the Lord or not. If it's leading you towards the Lord, it is a product of the Lord's work. It is a product of his spirit that's bringing all people to know the light and life that is through Jesus. But, but if it's not, it's the work of a, a different spirit. What, what we think in Ephesians about where uh, Paul talks about this one who is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, i.e. devil. There's an either or to it that John is admitting. And so he's saying to us, test the spirits. Understand the meaning of these words, but then understand the uh, command of these words. Test the spirit. So, so we're going to talk about this today. We have to test what we're hearing. A British guy, John Stott, he said this. He said, Christian faith is not to be mistaken for credulity. I feel like I have a kind of working knowledge of incredulous, but I didn't really know what a credulity meant. So I looked it up. Credulity means a tendency to be too ready to believe that something is real or true. Gullible. Christian faith should not be mistaken for just gullibility. The idea that a Christian just falls for anything because they're just kind of wide-eyed. No, true faith examines its object before, and again, reposing confidence, before settling itself down in it, before actually giving its confidence to it. Your understanding of a thing has to grow to a certain level of certainty before you can really trust it. That's kind of a, a misnomer with the word faith. People have this idea that to, to have faith is to believe something that you can't know anything about. Well, we don't think that. John Stott doesn't think that. And John the writer doesn't think about that. The apostle wants you to understand. He wants you to test. He wants you to think about this stuff before you believe. And so with Christianity, we do this sometimes. The stage sometimes is small, so hopefully I can fit. But the idea is that you're far from believing in Christianity. You don't really know anything about it, maybe. And people start to tell you things about it. And some of these prejudices that you had against it or some of this ignorance that you had about it begins to kind of disappear as you realize that the Bible is a historical document. Like there are things about it that's very trustworthy. You can understand that it's been kept. It's, it's, it's been transposed from the ancient times to today with a great deal, we would say an incredibly great deal, of accuracy. It's a, it's a trustworthy historical document. And then you start, as you read it, to understand that things in it are actually really beautiful and consistent. They're painful, but they're painful at the right points. That this idea that Jesus was a good teacher sort of falls before this greater idea that he was something more than that, that he was 
God? How did you come to believe that? Well, you start seeing the things that happen in, in the New Testament. You start reading about it. You start understanding that the historicity of the resurrection has a lot to be said for it. And so maybe then you take another step forward and you realize that the people in the church, you know, they're just people. But they're people who are growing and changing. They have an idea of grace and they have an idea of forgiveness that you don't see other places. They have a basis for their morality that the world can't hold. I don't know. It's just kind of different for different people. But you slowly take these steps forward and realize that there's really something to this Christianity. And then seeing all of those facts, having examined these facts, faith is when you take that last little jump to say, not just I think Christianity is true, but to say, I am a Christian. So you're taking lots of steps through reason, and there's a point where you have to say, okay, but is it definitely true or not? Am I going to put my name there or not? And so you take that final little jump and say, yes, I am a Christian. I believe Jesus is the Christ. I call him my, my Lord and my Savior. Okay, so, so we want to argue against the way Christians are sometimes seen in the media. We're, we're just sort of easy believers who fall for anything. If you have like a piece of fiction that you're reading, is the Christian more likely to be the friendly dumb person or the like glasses wearing like smart person? In general, the glasses wearing smart person is going to be a secularist and the really nice or judgmental person that's also kind of dumb is going to be the Christian. Well, we want to argue back against that. And say, no, no, no. When we become Christians, we accept a lot of different things about who God is. But we don't accept them despite evidence. We accept them on the basis of evidence. We're supposed to be testers of the things that we hear. That word in the Greek was also used to talk about testing coinage. So somebody's going to be in the marketplace buying and selling. Well, there's a lot of counterfeits coming your way. You got to have some way to test them. And in ancient times, they would have a lot of coinage, it'd be metal, so they would know the weight of relative coins, and they could test to see, is this the right material, and is it the, almost the right size? If so, great, let's do business. If not, you know, maybe you attack them or call the police or whatever. If you do business today, you probably don't do it in cash, but were you to do it in cash, you could pay, and you see somebody pays you a $100 bill, there's ways to test that $100 bill. If you've ever done that, I've not done it, but I've been in Walmart and I've seen people ahead of me that will pull out a $100 bill. And when they do, the person holds it up to the light or they put it under a special light and they have a marker that they mark it with to see, is this a counterfeit $100 bill? Well, you have to test. Something's valuable, something's important. You got to test. John is saying that what you think about God is incredibly valuable and you got to test. Well, okay, then what do we do with that? How do we test? Well, he gives us a great, a great clue already in 1 John 2 when he's going through and saying, uh, you know, little children, I write to you because you're this. Little old men, I write to you because this. Young men, I write to you. Well, on the second phase of that in, in 1 John 2, 14, he says, I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How do we overcome this evil spirit that's constantly lying and bringing us into a false understanding of the truth? Well, we abide in the word of God. How do we overcome? Well, we overcome by understanding the word of God. That's contrary to what a lot of people actually do. There's two wrong ways I want to just throw out there and help us to think about them together. One wrong way that people will understand whether or not a teaching is true is they'll say, well, do I like the teacher? 
I try to be likable, but I don't know if it works or not. And whether it does or not doesn't have anything to do with whether or not what I'm saying is true. But a lot of people that you'll listen to or read or go find or go to their social media or whatever are people that you already like. That's why you're going. Well, the fact that you like them has no bearing on whether or not what they're saying is true. Think about kids that wear different fashions. Why do they wear those fashions? Well, they wear those fashions because somebody cool has worn those fashions. Somebody that they want to be like has worn those fashions. And so it impacts the way that they dress because they want to be like somebody that they like. Our little girls, you can always tell who they're cheering for on a contest because it's always the pretty person. Why? Well, because they want to be pretty. They like the idea of being an attractive person. And so they're attracted to attractive people. And that person becomes somebody that they then cheer for in a contest. You don't know if that person should win that contest or not. Well, they think they should because they like that person. It's called the sociology of epistemology. It's a real thing. And it's something that you and I can do but shouldn't. I mean, it's probably cool for like your haircut or whatever, but it's not a good way to decide who God is. The most likable person is not necessarily right. That's a bad way to decide. And another bad way to decide is how does the teaching that that person's doing make me feel? This is a harder one because feelings feel right. They always feel authentic. You're feeling them. We have a culture that wants to support your feelings. Well, yeah, when they're right. (laughs) But there's something that's higher than your feelings. There's something that has the right to veto your feelings. When you counsel somebody, you don't just say that everything they feel is right. They're probably there because they've had a painful feeling that they don't want to feel anymore. They're way too anxious or they're way too depressed or they're way too jealous or they're way too quickly angry. They have bad emotion. And so as a counselor, your job is to walk with them through the product of the the, the thing that's producing that emotion and try and get into that little black box and try and help them get to a place where they process events and thoughts well and have emotions that work out well. Just because you feel something to be true or not be true, it doesn't really have anything to do with whether it's true or not. You can feel that bad things are good. If the Bible's true, your heart is broken that way. It's part of why God has to give us commands against things. It's because our heart wants things that it should not want. Well, those are bad emotional sort of thoughts. There's also the other way around, which is a good thing. In 1 John 3, we talked about this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. What's that saying? That's saying sometimes your heart will tell you something that is good is bad. That God will say, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're mine. And you look at yourself and say, ooh, I'm gross. I can't be loved. I'm far from God. And you feel all of the awful feelings that that wrong conclusion produces. Man, feelings, we got to be really careful with in trying to test whether something's true or not. we got to go somewhere else. We need a different test. What is that test? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 2. By this you can test the Spirit and know that it's the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is very Johannine is the, the adjective. I'm not pronouncing it right. But the idea that he's going to say it positively and then say it again and say it negatively. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come from the come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. What's the test? It's not your emotions. If it's not the likability of the teacher, what's your test? Well, your test is Jesus. In the Old Testament, they would test a prophet. This is before the time of Jesus. In the Old Testament, they would test a prophet. And the first test was when a prophet made a prophecy, they would write down the prophecy and see if the prophecy turned out to be right. If he said, in 60 days, the Assyrians will crush the Hittites, they would have to see, in 60 days, do the Assyrians crush the Hittites? And if it happened, that was a good sign that this person was a true prophet. If it didn't, it was absolute proof that they were not a true prophet. So that was test one. But then there was also a further test. And listen to this one. It's kind of crazy. If somebody prophesied something to be true and it did come true, they were still not necessarily a true prophet. They would then test that prophet by seeing, did that prophet lead the people of Israel toward God or toward other gods away from Yahweh? Think about that for a second. Even if they said something that was true, they may then use that credibility to either, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, bring people to Yahweh, or like many false prophets, lead people away towards other gods. What is that saying? That's saying the test isn't miracles. The test isn't impressiveness. The test is still Jesus. Does this prophecy bring you to God or away from him? It always comes back to Jesus. Now, the Old Testament is always pointing forward toward Jesus. In the New Testament, we're able to look through Jesus and see him in him, the test that all of Scripture was pointing towards. Is this spirit confirming what the Bible has said about God in Jesus Christ? That seems like maybe a, a difficult test, but, but take a minute and understand it. He says in, in John... Um, John says in verse 2 that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is a test. It means that in his day, there were people that would argue that, sure, Jesus can be a great teacher, but if he's God, he was not also a man. And the Jews would maybe understand that objection because they had a whole Old Testament's worth of Yahweh and Yahweh being so separate from creation, you would say that Yahweh could become a man? That was very difficult for a Jewish person to swallow. And then you had Greek people. They had no concept of the Old Testament. For, for a Greek person, what was material was wicked. The spirit was pure, but what was material was wicked. So the goal was to somehow transcend the physical and get to the spiritual. The idea that the pure spirit God would take on flesh... That was just a total non-starter. That spark would land in a puddle. There was just no way that that would get them excited. And so the gravity that was in the minds of the people that were listening to John's teaching was pulled away from this real understanding that God had become a man in Christ. 
If that was their presupposition, do you understand how easy it would be for a false teacher to come and say, no, 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 Jesus has not come in the flesh. And for them to go, oh, thank God. (laughs) I was having such a hard time believing that. Thank you for just fixing that. Well, we don't have that same hang up, but we've got other ones. What if somebody comes along and says, hey, man, don't worry about the Trinity. There's not three gods in one. There's just three gods. And you go, oh, (laughs) thank you. I was having such a hard time believing the Trinity because it's so confusing. But you just made it so easy. There's just lots of gods. It's just polytheism. Oh, Zeus and Hera. Here we go. Let's do it. Well, why? You've got something in your head that that is, is difficult for you to believe What's true if somebody comes along and just takes that away and just makes it easy? Man, there's something compelling about that. And John's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Even if things are difficult, God is not us. And so when he does something, it may feel difficult to believe. It may even feel painful to believe. But if it's God's word, you got to believe it. He says in verse 22 of John chapter 2, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What he's saying here is kind of the other side of that failure that a lot of people do. At the time they said, well, either Jesus is God and not man, or Jesus is man and not God. Both of those kind of make sense a little bit more than the idea that God became a man. So he's saying that that's another failure that people can make. That's another wrong idea that people can have. What he's saying here is the Son and the Father are one. To, to confess the Son is to call the Son what God the Father calls the Son, which is God. But a lot of teachers at the time would have said, no, 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 Jesus was just a man. So, so do you understand how the real understanding of who Jesus was would cut through the false sort of teaching that was going at all times? They heard something, it sounded right, but they would come back and remember again the gospel of Jesus, that God became man. That No, 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 Jesus is the Jesus that John taught me he is. And, and as they would remember who Jesus is, they could cut through all of this false teaching. Jesus is the test. He's the light that dispels the darkness. He's like a knight in shining armor that comes through and cuts the chains, that that cuts through every false doctrine. And to remember the fairy tales, we were talking about Grimm yesterday and how grim the Grimm fairy tales are. But, But one of them that's really beautiful is the idea that a kiss can awaken somebody who's sleeping under a spell. Do you understand that that when we say that Jesus is the test, we don't just mean an accurate knowledge of Jesus will help you to pierce deception. We also mean that to know Jesus is to be in love with what's true. And that deep passion that you start to build for what's true is going to help you to have really quick ears to hear when something's false. You don't just want to be right about Jesus We want to be with Jesus. Don't miss this. The test is not just, do you know stuff about Jesus? The test is, do you know Jesus? Okay, so this is a little heady, but there's a guy named Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher. He says, the focus of most modern moral philosophy, so people that are philosophers and they're writing about what is right, 
Their focus is usually on just principles or rules, injunctions, standards that guide action. While visions of the good are altogether neglected. So they're, they're all focused on the law. They're all focused on the rules rather than focusing on life, rather than focusing on what they're protecting, rather than focusing on what they should be going after. He says, morality is narrowly concerned with what we ought to do and not with what is valuable in itself or what we should admire or love. Now, if you don't know what to do with that, just drop it. What he's saying, though, is what I'm saying. Well, you come, when you come to Scripture, you're not just coming to a list of rules or a list of facts about who God is. You're coming to an invitation. You're coming to a proposal. You're coming to a God who wants to be with you, and He's inviting you through the Scripture, through this story about who He is, to be with Him forever, to have your sins forgiven. That's the gospel story that, that allows you to understand everything else that's going on in Scripture. You know, no, I feel like Scripture really is just about what you should do. Well, yeah. There's a ton of Scripture about what you should do and what you should not do. But if you actually read it, Scripture is way more concerned with what you do love. God knows that if He gets your heart, He'll get your head and your hands also. So there's stuff in there about your hands and there's stuff in there about your head. But all of Scripture is driving at what you love. And if you read through the New Testament, you'll soon start to notice something. That there are four Gospels for every one Romans. Do you ever read Romans? Romans is a book in the New Testament. If you ever read it, the Apostle Paul wrote it. And it's a letter, but it's got a ton of theology. And it's rich and it's beautiful. You should read Romans. I'm not anti-Romans. I'm pro-Romans. But I'm making the point that if you go to read the New Testament, you'll see there's one Romans and it's 16 chapters. But there are four Gospels and the shortest is 16 chapters. That means there's more than four times as gospel as there is Romans. Now, read Romans, and we're pro-Romans again. But the emphasis on Scripture is not even what you know. The emphasis on Scripture is who you know. Do you know the Jesus that has come to be with you? Why are the gospels so much more important? Because the gospel is the love letter that is saying that God has come to find you, to hunt you, to forgive you, to clean you, to die for you and rise on your behalf. Do you know Jesus? That's the gospel question. Gospel is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's also the gospel question is in the good news that the New Testament proclaims, that Romans proclaims. So, as you're listening to this teaching, as you're seeing things that are out there, how do you know what's true and what's false? Well, do you know Jesus? Jesus is the test. If you know him and if you love him, you'll start to understand things about him. And you can start today. You can read the scriptures and understand more about Jesus. If you just sit to read the Bible, it can be really overwhelming. But often people wait, overestimate what they can do in one year and wait, underestimate what they can do in 10 years. So you say, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Great. If you actually do that, do you know what percentage of Bible is going to like stick in your brain? It's not great, <laughs> but if you do it 10 times, you're going to get way more. If you do it 50 times, you're going to get it way more. If you will just be pursuing the Lord through Scripture, it's going to have an effect. What's more, God has given you people to help out. You do have pastors. Now, it kind of flies in the face of some of this. You still need to be testing what even your pastors tell you. 
We want you to be reading scripture with us so that you are testing actively the sermon that you're hearing. But at the same time, God has given you pastors who you give more time to so that we can go and spend time studying this stuff and sitting under the feet of really good people so that we can help you to stay as close to Scripture as we can. Well, have you considered what James says about that? Have you considered this psalm? Have you considered this uh, proverb? Can we help you to see how all of Scripture is pointing to what's true and keep you? It's important. Now, some of you are going to go one way with pastors and never question anything we say and just trust us implicitly. Well, don't do that. You should test. But some of you are going to go the opposite way. And, uh, well... The opposite way is what a lot of people do and just get really skeptical of any authority figure. <laughs> well, don't do that. But, but you could also just never ask us anything. Just go on your own way and just sort of assume you got it handled. Well, let me encourage you to take advantage of a gift that God has given. It says in Ephesians 4 that God gives the apostles and the prophets. God gives pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're a gift to you. Help us help you. And you look at all this and just say, I don't know, man, <laughs> it's kind of too much. Maybe the body of Christ is a big place. You may not be a brainiac. It may not be your job to really think really hard. And that's okay. It may not be your job to be the best evangelist in the church, but you're still called to share the gospel. You may not be called to be the, the most generous giver in the church, but you're still called to give. You may not be called to be the best theologian in the church, but you're still called to test. And if that sounds so overwhelming, look at what John immediately does. He says, no, 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 but, but remember, <laughs> we win. He says, little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They that are from the world, therefore, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them, but we're from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What is he saying? He's saying, remember, if you have the spirit, even though things are confusing, you win. If you have Jesus, even if you can't explain the, the falsehood and every single opposing teaching that comes up, hey, you win. This seems super intimidating. Just remember, you win. So the question you've got to ask yourself today is, do you know Jesus? How familiar are you with that big test? Do you know Jesus well enough that when somebody tells you something, you can say, hmm, but that's not Jesus, though. Or, hey, that is Jesus, and I'm going to benefit from this good teaching. Man, if we're not a church that can think well, then we're going to be a church that just falls for whoever's charismatic. Not in a spiritual sense, but just in an appealing sense. We're going to be people who fall into the spirit of the age. Just kind of what sounds right to the people who are most influential right now. And if we do that, we stop being light and start to become what the world already is. We stop being salt. And if salt loses its saltiness, what's it good for? Nothing. You just throw it out. It gets trampled out on the ground. Church, let's be the church and let's be useful. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us readers. I pray, Lord, that you would make us prayers. I pray, Lord, that you would make us rememberers, that, that we would remember the gospel that you have given us, that we would not fall from those first principles, from what we believed on that first day when we came to know the holy God who forgives a sinful person through the blood of Jesus. 
Lord, I pray that that gospel message would be our light. Pray that that gospel message would hold us close to what is true. Lord, never let us leave what is right and true, but also, Lord, let, never let us leave our first love. Let us be exactly what 1 John is teaching us to be, which is not just thinkers, but lovers. We don't want to be like the church in Ephesus in, in the book of Revelation who lost their first love. They were right, and they could understand those Nicolaitans and, and be able to say what's wrong about what they believe, but, but they left their first love. Father, allow us, because we love you, to be a discerning people for your glory. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.